it, the season is fairly messed up. And, uh, you know, there, there's really nothing we can do about it. Just ride it out and stay healthy, stay safe. Um, try and keep each other from not going completely bonkers. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the Clinical Athletes Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Reese. Today's episode, we're going to be chatting with Derek Fitzgerald. We'll learn more about him in just a few minutes. I just want to throw out there what the purpose of the podcast is, and that's basically to bring some exposure to some of the amazing accomplishments, people who most of us may not consider to have been or to be uh, healthy individuals or uh, individuals without any kind of condition that they're dealing with. Also, I want to highlight the amazing achievements that these people have done and use them as a source of inspiration for the rest of us. I mean, you look at it and you say, these people are doing it, you know, why can't we do it? So, uh, sponsors for our show, we have none. Uh, So if anyone is interested in sponsoring the show and you're a good fit for the content that we have, please feel free to get a hold of me uh, through our website at clinicalathletes.com. So without any further ado, we'll bring in Derek Fitzgerald and start the show. As promised, we have today's guest all the way from Doylestown, Pennsylvania. We have uh, Derek Fitzgerald, who has an amazing story of not only surviving cancer and a heart transplant, but competing in Ironman triathlon competitions. Welcome, Derek. Oh, thanks, Ken. Happy to be here. Oh, I'm, we're, I'm even more happy to have you here, I got to tell you. So you have a bit of a unique story. Um, not that all stories aren't unique, but uh, your, your story begins with... Um, with uh, being a, a cancer survivor. Uh, what I'd like you to do is for a couple of minutes, just if you could take us through the whole um, pre-cancer diagnosis, uh, what your life was like, uh, and then lead us into the, the cancer diagnosis and the treatment after that. Well, it's pretty funny. I mean, it's, it's I guess, ironic at this point because I was completely sedentary. I was a an executive at a computer uh, programming company and I was a programmer and, and so all I was doing was sitting on my my fairly large rear end all day long uh, typing away at the keyboard I had no activity no exercise in my day and and I was over 200 pounds completely out of shape of course and and that my whole world revolved around work and making money and focusing on my career and and uh, a lot of good that did me because uh, I, I started having uh, intestinal distress when I went to the bathroom. I started bleeding um, and uh, being 30 years old at the time, I tried to ignore it for as long as I could because it, I, I was invincible and how how could there be something wrong with me? And after several months, well, actually, I, I, after several weeks, I finally got up the nerve to go see a doctor, and they uh, referred me to a gastroenterologist. And that gastroenterologist spent eight months sticking things down and up uh, my body uh, to try and find something. And uh, they weren't able to. I was completely asymptomatic other than every two weeks I was bleeding when I went to the bathroom. And so uh, finally, after eight months of that, he said, listen, some people 
just have weird things and they, they live with them. And, and, but you know, before I let you go, I'd like to try one more test. We saw one shadow uh, when we scanned your abdomen and we don't think it's anything really, there's like a 2% chance that it could be cancer, but we'd like to do just a, a very small incision in your stomach, take a look inside, just double check, make sure before we just let you go on your way. And I'm glad he did that. I mean, the guy stuck with me for eight months. Uh, and ultimately, during the middle of that procedure, they brought me out of uh, sedation with surgeons' heads, you know, over my head while I was laying on the table, saying, we found something in your intestines. It needs to come out right now. And that was a grapefruit-sized tumor. Uh, I found out later. So. When I woke up after surgery, they said we had your tumor biopsied, and unfortunately, we have to tell you that you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So, uh, okay, that was that was how I found out I had cancer. So, 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 teaching moment number one. I love your your story about the invincible thirty-year-old, and I, I look back at myself as as Ken Reese, thirty-year-old, and and luckily I I didn't have any of these issues going on, but. Uh, Boy, yeah. I mean, the thought of just, uh, you know, I guess it's just a huge case of denial, isn't it? It is. I mean, and I, I had never faced anything more than a cold. So, I mean, why, how, how could it be possible that I had cancer? And, and ultimately, um, what I found out was that the likelihood that the, the, where the tumor was placed, um, how it was growing, uh, for my age group and demographic, as at that time a thirty-year-old a, a uh, guy, uh, it was a two percent chance that it was cancer. So I had ninety-eight percent going good for me, and ultimately <laughs> that two percent got me. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. So we've often heard, and, and I certainly don't mean to to minimize or be glib about about cancer itself, but the treatment is often worse, or the treatment is, is worse than the disease. Hmm. And uh, I mean, I think this this approaches it in your case. What so you you had the tumor removed, and and after that, there was a process of of treatment for uh, to, to to prevent the cancer from spreading further. Sure, you're sure that they they. They told me ahead of time that they were going to put me through physical rehabilitation first because they just sliced all my abdominals. So I had to learn to get up on my own and walk again. After I was strong enough to withstand chemo, they would bring me in. And so I went through uh, five months of chemotherapy. And there was the, the chemo regimen they gave me was standard, very, very standard. But you know, they, there was one drug in particular where a nurse had to sit by my side with you know the, the 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 needle in my IV and pushing her thumb on the plunger over the course of 30 minutes to inject all of this stuff uh, this one particular drug and she said listen this one drug if it gets out of the vein that we're in and gets into the rest of your bloodstream it has a potential to cause damage to your heart but we know more about hearts than we do about cancer so, and, and the likelihood of anything bad happening to your heart while I'm pushing this plunger in uh, is like a 2% risk. And I was like, ah, crap. So, um, 
your old fr- your old friend two percent again. My old friend two percent <laughs> came back to haunt me. So, um, yeah, you know, during the chemotherapy itself, through the standard process of losing my hair, and and I actually um, gained weight while on chemo because um, I had these these not to be gross, but I had these these bumps, these lesions down my throat due to the chemo. Um, and they itched, so the only way I could scratch them was to pass food over them. Uh, so I gained weight on chemo, so I was even heavier than than I was before. Um, and ultimately, you know, I, I, I started getting sick and throwing up all the time and f- fatigued. Um, but after five months, they said, hey, you know what, you're in remission. So three months after they told me I was in remission, I started realizing that I was having problems breathing. It was more than just being fatigued from going through the process of chemotherapy. And I realized that something was wrong. And I started having dizzy spells uh, that lasted about 30 seconds long. And then they just gradually got worse. It became harder and harder to breathe. And I went to the, to the ER several times and it, late night ER trips where I was laying in bed and, and I thought, you know what, I'm dying. Uh, what's going on? So I, I would go to the to the ER in the middle of the night and and first they just diagnosed it as pleurisy. Then they tried to then they thought it was pneumonia, just something in my lungs. And finally, a cardiologist. I didn't know he was a cardiologist at the time. He came, sat down my, by my bedside. He, he introduced himself. He ran me, ran me through a, a number of tests, and he said, "Derek, I know you've had a rough year, but I'm afraid I've got some more bad news. You're in heart failure, and you know, I, Ken, as you know, uh, ejection fraction, uh, the efficiency at which our heart pumps oxygenated blood through our, our bodies, normal ejection fraction or EF is 55 to 65 percent for somebody. At that point, when that cardiologist." did those tests, my EF was 18%. And at that point, he said, listen, um, it's kind of subjective at this point, but, you know, with, you know, the, 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 the EF that we normally put someone on the heart transplant waiting list is 17%. So hopefully with medications, with diet and exercise, we're going to be able to raise your EF maybe up to 30, 35%. So you're still not gonna have a healthy heart, but at least you won't be struggling as much as you are at 18. And, and that's, that's the, that was the first treatment thought. Unfortunately, I was so sick and so fatigued that I wasn't able to work out. Um, and my, my, over the course of the following seven years, I just continued to get worse. And, you know, the 30-second the dizzy spells turned into a minute, turned into an hour, turned into 24 hours a day. Um, and I developed a cough that I thought was just going to – it was so bad, I thought it was going to snap my spine in half. Um, I couldn't lie down to sleep anymore. I had to be – uh, because my heart wasn't strong enough to pump the fluid out of my lungs. So I had to be propped up at all times. I was in bed. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do anything. And I was sleeping 23 hours a day. Wow. 
Wow. So, um, so, the, so how you mentioned you were, you, you deconditioned conditioned quite quickly after your diet. Well, you were deconditioned quite quickly after the cancer treatment, yeah. uh, had the, the very low, uh, ability to, to do any kind of physical activities. Uh, and, and so at what point, um, did they say, Hey, Derek, you know what? Our treatments aren't working. We're going to have to, uh, put you on the transplant list. I was, what, 37, 38 years old. I, it was August of 2010 and went back in for my regularly scheduled checkup with my cardiologist. And he, he said just that. He said, listen, I've got some bad news. You're getting worse. We thought we were going to, you know, see some improvement, but you just continued to get progressively worse. Uh, at that point, my 18% ejection fraction had gone down to... 10 or 11 percent and they said you know we're, we're gonna start putting you through the process of getting on the transplant list and i, I found a hospital here in philadelphia uh, the university of pennsylvania and they took care of me um they 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 got me all ready to go and and so it was just a matter of of the weight at that point Right, right. Okay. Um, and so uh, I, I'm going to uh, assume from stories I've heard before, they give you a pager, they send you home, they say, keep this near you. When we have something available, we're going to give you a call and we need you to get in quickly. So uh, is that the process for you? And, and, and what happened when the, when the pager went off? Yeah, um, it, the, I didn't get a pager, um, I, I, but uh, they, they, did just, they do tell you that you can't go anywhere uh, beyond two hour drive radius from the hospital. And, uh, so Thanksgiving, so August, I was on the transplant list. Thanksgiving, I, I knew that it was probably my last chance to see my family. I wasn't expecting a heart. Um, I had a, I, I, I wanted to see family on Thanksgiving. So, uh, I made it out. And of course you've got all the the, the young nieces and nephews running around, you know, uh, playing in the dirt and picking boogers and, and, <laughs> in, in, and so, of course, I, I mean, I've, I've had my head shaved since I had cancer, since, since the chemo uh, had all my hair fall out. So it was funny that, you know, Uncle Derek had a bald head. So, of course, they're, they're rubbing my head. And, and if, from that, I got, I did get pneumonia. And so I went for my follow-up checkup uh, after I was treated for, for pneumonia, and it was just days after Christmas in 2010. And I went for a, a chest X-ray, and I'm walking back to my car after the chest X-ray, and I get a call on my cell phone, and I pick it up, and it, it was the technicians who had just taken my, my scans. And they said, Mr. Fitzgerald, we're not supposed to say anything to you until we talk to uh, our consulting physician, but we're holding your scans in our hands right now, and, and it looks like you're having some kind of cardiac event. Um, if you have a cardiologist, you need to get to that cardiologist right now, and if not, you need to get to the emergency room right now. And as it happened, my, my regularly scheduled checkup, my four-month checkup with my cardiologist was the very next day. And I, I called the office and I said, hey, can you get me in today? 
I think something's going on. And I don't think I explained it properly. I was just too tired. They said, no, we're busy today. Uh, can you can this wait till tomorrow? And I said, sure, why not? And so the next day, I, I mean, I, I, the next, that night I had a, a sleepless night at home. Um, things were bad. I was having a, uh, some, some severe end stage uh, heart failure issues. Um, very difficult to breathe, but that for me at that point, that was normal. So the next day I walked into my regular check with my doc, walked into the examination room, sat down in the chair, nurse comes back into the, the waiting room, calls me back to the exam room. And, uh, and I get up, I walk back, sit up on the bench and she takes my vitals and she's like, your heart rate is really low. Are you an athlete? And uh, I, I don't know if she was joking or, or what, but I was like, no, no, not an athlete. Uh, she takes my vitals, she's the room. She goes, I'll go get the doctor. She closes the door and I collapsed. And, uh, and so uh, I was married at the time. Uh, my, my wife was there in the room with me. She's trying to keep me from falling off the bench. And as she's doing that, my cardiologist opens the door to the exam room, helps her hoist me back up on the, the bench. And uh, he puts a blood pressure cuff on one arm, can't get a reading, puts it on the other arm, can't get a, a reading. And I'm my, my head's flopping around. Um, I, I barely remember what's going on. I do remember him saying, call a helicopter, call an ambulance. Derek's going in for, his, for a new heart now. Um, and that was it. Um, I had admission nurses at Penn later approach me and tell me that I was one of those guys that when I'm wheeled into the hospital, that they just look at and they know that my time is is coming to an end quickly. And they just, I'm one of the, I was one of those people that they just prayed for as soon as I walked, I was rolled into the, to the hospital. Um, I was completely gray. I had my ejection fraction at the time was 5%. And I, I didn't have much time left. That was, that was for certain. Wow. All right. But um, for you, the, 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 the story gets, gets better. Um, yeah, and it does better. So, I did survive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always sad. You know, you hear these great stories about, about people who, uh, who receive a new heart and, and turn their lives around, which you did, but unfortunately it comes at, at a great expense to someone else. So, yeah. so you've, um, about someone else's family in particular. So, so you're, you're in the hospital, the heart becomes available. Um, you undergo the transplant. So what was it? Yeah. I, I watched your Ted talks, which was, which was really good. And, um, and you, you mentioned waking up in the hospital and, mm -hmm. uh, if you could go through that and, and what it was like. Sure. Sure. Um, so yes, they, they told me I was going to get a new heart on January 3rd, 2011, uh, in the afternoon. And I agreed to it, uh, during one of the the few times of the day that I was actually coherent and <laughs> conscious. Um, and so they wheeled me into the OR at 11 o'clock that night. And uh, I woke up, you know, they put me under, I woke up the next day and I was surrounded by this bank of machines that were pumping and chirping and, and, 
and beeping and and thudding and 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 I it was overwhelming and I I, I was unsure of what had happened and I was able to term, determine that yes I did receive the heart because obviously sometimes they they open you up and they have the heart next to the body before the the surgery and they say nope it's it's not a it's not the right match and then they sew you back up and you didn't get the heart but I woke up and and I found out that I had received the heart and of course I'm I I felt no pain but I was I was just completely overwhelmed and crying with gratitude uh, because I was alive and you know of all the beeping and compressing and 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 thudding around me I, there was this that that thud that was overwhelming to me and i i looked around and i tried to figure out where it was coming from and then all of a sudden it hit me that it was a heartbeat and then i i realized at that moment that that there had been a time in my life when every now and again i would lay on my pillow and i could hear a heartbeat and it had been so long since i'd heard that or felt that that it was foreign to me when it when i actually realized that that thudding was was kind of a heartbeat and obviously this hero out there who who decided to say yes to organ donation um and save the life of a complete stranger on their last day i mean it's 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 beyond anything that i can that I can fathom it is the the level of compassion and generosity from this this human being who now beats in my chest and and uh, as as I'm as I say a lot I am no longer a me I'm a we and we have you know I I, I as the the one half um, of this of the symbiotic relationship. I've done everything I can uh, since this person was implanted into my chest. I've done everything I can to be a good host, to be a good custodian to my body, to honor this gift that has provided me so much over the past nine years. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I get to walk around. I'm, I'm the chassis of this car, but this this person, this other person, this hero is the engine. And without, you know, without this person, I wouldn't be here. And without my body, this person wouldn't be here. So it's it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a, a fantastic relationship. And 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 I'm I'm just just overwhelmingly thankful that this person decided to say yes to organ donation. Uh, that's fantastic. I know that, um, you know, when you, the, the gratitude, you, you express your gratitude for, for the donor. And uh, I can only imagine what that's like. I mean, you, as you said, being wheeled into the hospital, um, having people praying for you, seeing people like you come in before and not leaving the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, yeah, so, so on, such an unselfish task. Um, 
So, so you felt good after the transplant um, and, and you started to become physically active. You started to honor your donor by, by taking care of this heart in, in a, and getting into physical activity in a way you never had before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't know what I was going to do to honor this person who saved my life. Um, but I wanted to do everything that I possibly could to make the most of every second that I was given because you, you never know. I mean, it's, it's a transplant. It's, it's joining two people together doesn't always work out, unfortunately. Um, and I, I considered myself to be in the bonus round of life and I was going to make the, the most of every moment. And as, as I heard at one of the transplant games that I would live like my donor was watching. And so this, <laughs> this person would no longer be able to, to do all the things that, that, uh, that they wanted to do, that they had dreams and hopes for. Um, so I would do it for both of us. And, and it, it really began with stepping outside my comfort zone and becoming fit and active. And so it started with cardiac rehab and it started on a treadmill and I would walk for nine minutes and 55 seconds. And then I would try the most feeble jog that I possibly could do for five seconds. And then I'd start again, nine minutes, 55 seconds of walking, five minutes of a really, really weak jog until that five seconds of jogging became 10, became 30. And, and I, every day I just, I felt a little bit better. And every day I tried to push myself a little bit further. And so eight months after my heart transplant, I did my very first 5k run. Um, and that was the longest I had gone to that point. And it was the, the only organized run I had ever done in my life. Uh, so I crossed that finish line and it had just been just, again, to it, the, the transplant introduced me to a way of life and to a level of gratitude to enjoy all of these experiences that I had, I had never thought about before, never even considered. And so I knew that, you know, once I figured out that I could do a 5k, I wanted to, to kick the tires a little bit more and see what my donor and I could do beyond that. And so two months later, uh, we did a half marathon and I thought, well, that's cool. Um, what about this triathlon thing? So, uh, I, I picked, I, I bought a bike, a really cheap bike and, uh, and I started riding in, so I was transplanted in January of 2011, January of 2012, I bought a bike and I joined, uh, leukemia and lymphoma society's team in training and, and they taught me how to swim prior to that point. I, I had a pool as a kid growing up with my, with my folks. But I, I had never learned technique. I was a champion uh, belly flopper and cannonballer. Uh, so they taught me technique, and they, I, 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 I gained a whole new family of athletes and friends. 
And so started all of that in January of 2012. By April of 2012, I did my first Olympic distance triathlon. By May of 2012, a month later, I did my first half Ironman. Okay, so I think we can all kind of see where this is going. So what what was the um it, was it the 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 challenge of the sport or the the motivation of the group that that got you progressing from from one distance to the next and and you know like the 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 leap from a 5k to a half marathon that's not it's that, that's pretty big but you know the leap from a half ironman to a full ironman that's a huge leap and you surely the group you're training with um or the people you're training with or just your investigation of it you probably realized it was going to be a, a massive feat and um did 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 you did you just know it was something you had to do it was something it was calling you well, absolutely i mean again when when you take the perspective of just trying to be better than the day you were before, ultimately, you, it'll take you some places. And uh, I, hung, I, I do hang out in general with a fairly uh, intense and nutty group of friends who uh, think, don't think twice about going off and, you know, doing an Ironman or, or you know, doing... Uh, running from one side of the Grand Canyon to the other and back in the course of a day or, I mean, you know, doing these, these, uh, these ultra long distance endurance uh, relay races and running through the night and running through the day and running through the morning and running through the night again. And, and, and I joined them and uh, they were the, the best bad influences uh, that, uh, that I think I've, I've, I've ever teamed up with. So, um, so yeah, they were encouraging. I had the drive and the passion to, to honor my donor. And so in 2012, in July, we all uh, volunteered at Ironman Lake Placid in hopes that some of them would sign up, be able to get entry for the following year to do 2013 Ironman Lake Placid. And um, I'm 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 on the hill next to the line, and uh, Mike Riley, the, the 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 announcer for Ironman, is getting everybody whipped into a frenzy. Eleven o'clock p.m. to midnight is Inspiration Hour. That's when you know all the athletes who've, who've really moved mountains to get to that finish line are coming into the finish. They got the techno music pumping and blasting, and everybody, you know, clapping and stomping their feet. People are just losing their minds and and cheering for these people crossing the finish line. So, at it, it's, it was just a few minutes to midnight, uh, 2012, uh, at Ironman Lake Placid, and and Mike Riley, the announcer, says uh, he gets on the microphone. He said, "Hey, everybody, my my spotters tell me that there's one last person who can possibly." finish before the midnight cutoff he's tired uh he's he's hurt he's given it everything he can to make it in here um his name's bill and i know bill can hear us if we cheer loud enough so let's bring him on in and you know everybody starts stomping their feet on in the in the in the bleachers and and clapping their hands and they're going bill bill 
Bill. And Mike Riley's screaming, Bill, can you hear us? Come on home, buddy. We're waiting for you. And, uh, and all of a sudden, Bill enters the Olympic Oval from the far side. And for, for those who don't know, you've got you've to go around the far turn, come around to the, to a few more feet to the finish line at Lake Placid in that historic Olympic Oval. He enters the Oval. The crowd goes absolutely bonkers. <laughs> and he makes it a quarter of the way through the turn, and he collapses on the track just completely spent and uh and uh everyone's like oh mike riley gets back on the mic he's like come on everybody this isn't over and we're looking at the clock and there's like a minute left and we're like bill 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 and he staggers to his feet and he makes it another quarter of the turn and he's he he comes around the bend and he has a few feet left before the finish line and people start counting 10, nine, eight, and Bill collapses again. And, and we're like, come on, Bill. <laughs> and he struggles to get up and it's like the end of a boxing movie. He's trying to find his feet. He's get up and finally three, two, one. And he collapses back on the track and he doesn't make it across the finish line. And everybody goes, oh, and, and, and Mike Riley goes, all right, everybody, you know what? Bill wasn't an official finisher, but he's still an Ironman in our book. So everybody, come on, Bill, Bill. And everybody, everyone starts chanting again. And Bill's coach and uh, the, the men's winner uh, of that Ironman that day, Andy Potts, get on either side of Bill. They lift him up by the armpits and they drag him with his toes dragging <laughs> behind him. They pull him across the finish line. And the crowd, again, goes bonkers. And I was like, you know what? I want that. I have to do that. And uh, I called my coach right then and there. And I said, coach, sorry to call you after midnight, um, but I'm doing an Ironman. And uh, the cool thing was is that after I'd done that, I, I, you know, the, the year later, I went and did Ironman Lake Placid. A year that I told that same story to volunteers and I, I tell the story I sit down in my seat and and everybody's you know you know saying good speech whatever and, and uh, this guy kneels down next to me at the table and he goes hey that was a good speech I'm Bill and <laughs> awesome and so yeah that Bill is my inspiration for Iron Man but uh, but yeah in between watching Bill almost finished 2012 to when I spoke to him after and met him after uh, a lot of time passed and a lot of stuff happened but uh, yeah that he was the inspiration um, and uh, another cancer surviving heart transplant recipient who attempted a full distance Ironman hadn't finished it so when it came to be my in 2013 to come back to Lake Placid, there was no pressure on me. No one had ever done it. No one, I mean, no one had ever finished, I should say. And so when, when, when the bar is set so low, I just wanted to go out there and see what my donor and I could do and just to enjoy a day of a, a fully catered training day with 2,500 of my <laughs> best friends. 
Right. So, so uh, Ironman uh, Lake Placid, July 2013, I, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe, well, I don't believe. I, I do a little research for these things, whatever. I don't know. 1630 was your time. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, so, you know, just, just briefly. Uh, so at what point in the race did you, I know that um, for many people, I remember doing my first Ironman and, you know, you know that other people have done it and you say, okay, well, that guy did it. I'm pretty sure I, I can do this, but there comes a point in the race where you go, I got this. I, I can do this. I can do this. So what was your what was your moment in, in your first Ironman there where you thought, I got this? Was it early in the race, later in the race? Was it even before the race started? Did you have the confidence you were going to be able to do it? Um, I believed it when my foot crossed the finish line. <laughs> and even then, I wasn't sure that it had happened. Um, I had friends out there who were running alongside of me telling me, you know, I was, I was in the final 5k of the race and they were telling me, Derek, you've got this, you're going to finish, you're going to do this. And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I, I will not believe it until I do it because you know, the, 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 the famous tagline of Iron Man is anything is possible. And maybe it wasn't meant to be. Uh, you know, there were a lot of things that could happen. I could fall over and trip and, you know, break my leg, whatever. I, my, 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 my heart could give out. Whatever it was, I wasn't going to count my chickens until they hatched. And, and so I refused to accept it until I crossed that finish line. But when I did, it was an exclamation point on, on a journey, not only back to health, but beyond a level of health and fitness that I had ever known. And again, right. um, it, it was just a, a level of gratitude that I will never be able to express. And uh, an overwhelming gift that I will never be able to repay. Right. Um, awesome. Um, I know that again, talking to people and experience that you do an Ironman and, and you say, okay, well, you know what? I can do the next one better. So fast forward four months, which is an amazing feat in itself doing two Ironmans in, in a quarter of a year, but you and, and some friends decide to, uh, tackle Ironman Arizona. So what was the, uh, how did you end up meeting up with uh, Trevor and Justin? Well, um, it was funny because, you know, the, the, the athletic endurance community, uh, the heart transplant community that actually does, is crazy enough to do long distance endurance sports is fairly limited. It's very small. And so you, you find each other on, on Facebook and uh, like, oh, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I just did a uh, marathon. Okay, great. So start talking to the guys. And um, it was actually Kyle Garlett that reached out to me and he in the maybe a month before Ironman Lake Placid. And he said, hey, I've been talking to these guys on Facebook, uh, Trevor and Justin. Um, and uh, I know you're friends with this other guy, Dan, uh, out in Philly. And we're thinking about putting a team together. Do you think you want to do it? It's Ironman Arizona. I know it's four months after Placid, but 
we're, we're getting a band together. And uh, I was like, Kyle, you got to be kidding me, man. I'm, I don't even know that I'm going to finish this first one. And I said, well, you know what? If I finish this first one, you know, ignorance is bliss. I'll, I'll, I'll go for two. And, uh, and, and that's what happened. We, we formed the Tin Men. And, uh, and ultimately, uh, Kyle got injured in training. Uh, a week or so before the race, I think. Um, Dan jumped into the water and somebody jumped on top of him and messed up his back in the water before the cannon fired for that race. So he pulled himself very, very early. Um, And then it was just uh, myself and Trevor and Justin. And so obviously... um, we had found you and 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 heard about dwight um as being the first heart transplant uh to fish a full distance iron man and we were curious to see if well first five then three of us could finish an iron man together as three heart transplant recipients um and uh, and see what we could do so uh we, we were we were, uh, we, we had our heart rate monitors on and we wanted to capture that data and figure out, you know, why it was possible for us to do this, how it was possible, what we were doing differently that would allow our, our donor hearts to function the way they were and as efficiently as they were. Um, and so, yeah, I finished that, I think, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes faster than Placid, but, of course, they're different courses. They have different sure. um, challenges to them. Uh, but uh, I finished my second Ironman faster than my first. And then Trevor um, became the third heart transplant uh, to finish a, uh, an Ironman just uh, a few minutes after me in Ironman, Arizona. Awesome. Awesome. And, and you're selling yourself a little bit short there. You're you're uh, more than an hour faster in uh, Arizona than you were in, in um, Lake Placid. I, I got 1630 and 1529 as, as times for you. Oh, really? But huh. I'm just I'm just. Yeah, well, they, <laughs> it's funny what because uh, there's been so much going on since then. Right. So, yeah, f- fantastic. So and, and now there's been a few more. Um, uh, transplants that have have completed Ironman distances, which is awesome. I, you know, I think it seems like every every time someone, you know, Dwight, then you, then then um, then Trevor, uh, and it just builds. And 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 I think that's kind of the point of one of the reasons I I think this um, this is an important topic for a podcast. And one of the reasons I wanted to do it was to to you know show that you know that I, I know certainly when I started getting in, into involved in, in transplantation. You know, I, I had envisioned I'd met a few people with heart transplants, but no one ever like you guys. And to see what what it could be is just it's just so exciting. So I will I'm going to um, fast forward to, to 2015 and probably the highlight of your triathlon career, which was meeting me on the on the pier in Kona. Oh, so absolutely. You, yeah, you did that, get to. <laughs> that was it. At that point, I could retire. Yeah. Hang up the, the, yeah, the we, speakers. Uh, 
a lot of people say that. A lot of people say, well, I've met Ken. Have you met Ken? And and and, and if they have, they're pretty much, you know, content with everything they've done with their lives and they <laughs> ease into retirement. But I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I, I was, uh, I, I knew you were at the race. So I, it, we had chatted before. And so I want to keep an eye open for you. And I also knew I was looking at the celebrities doing the race. So I thought, okay, well, Sean Astin is doing this race too. So I'm going to keep an eye out for Sean Astin. So I think just before I'd met you, I was uh, on the pier. We, my wife and I had gone for a swim, came out and Sean Astin was right in front of me. And I said, hey, Mr. Astin. And so I had a little chat with him and we finished swimming. And then, uh, so I'm going, okay, now keep an eye out for Derek. Keep an eye out for Derek. And, uh, and then I hear this, hey, Ken. <laughs> And I go, hey, what, what the hell? You know who I am? You know what I look like? I'm looking for you. And and, and I thought that was so classy that 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 you uh, recognized what I look like, you know, and I'm, I've got like, you know, four pictures on Google, uh, whereas you're, you know, you're pretty well, well um, recognizable. So I appreciated that. And then I said something stupid like, gee, uh, you're not as tall as I thought you were going to be. And for those of you who... For those of you who know me, I'm I'm not a very tall stature myself. I'm about five six, but uh, but then I'm, I'm looking at this picture of you and I, which I'm going to put on as the the picture for the the podcast. And and you're actually you're actually quite a bit taller than me. So I, I don't know what I was thinking. Maybe I, I was standing on a curb or something when when, well, when I bumped into you. Dude, I mean for for us transplants, um, the work that you're doing, the work that you've done, you are the celebrity. And it, it was definitely an, an, an honor to meet you, um, you know, and, you know, obviously it's gone way, way downhill since then. But, um, but no, uh, it, 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 it was a true honor to meet you. And, and yeah, I, I, I studied your research and, um, and saw what you did with Dwight and, you know, just appreciate the work that you do. Um, and, 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 and what you do for, for our people. And so, uh, so yeah, no, it's, it's, it was, it was the highlight of my Kona trip. Oh, that, that's kind of, you know what I, I was just going to, um, one of the introductions to my show is I don't have any sponsors, but now I think I have my first sponsor, Derek Fitzgerald is my first uh, there you go. sponsor for my podcast. <laughs> okay. So tell, tell us, uh, tell us your, your Kona experience. I mean, that was my first time there as well. And, and it was, you know, I've done Ironmans before, but it was different. It was, it was a different experience entirely for me. And was it the same for you? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, one, it's Mecca. For, for all triathletes, um, for anybody that aspires to do Ironman, when you get to, to Kona, the scale is immense. Uh, everywhere you turn around, you bump into either an actual celebrity or a triathlete, a pro triathlete celebrity. Um, and you go, yeah, I, I, I watched your video uh, where you finished and won this race. And I saw that video where you won that race. And you're, you're just hanging out with them, you know, at the pier going for a swim to the coffee boat or you're out on the Queen K. So, so that in itself blew my mind. Uh, you bump into Sean Astin and, uh, and, and you have a conversation with him. Um, and, and he's an awesome human being, uh, in his own right, by the way. Um, but, uh, it, it the race itself, um, how, how little right I actually had to be there. Um, having done, I think Kona was my fourth, my 
fourth or fifth iron. I, I, I don't know anymore, but um, sure. I, I got into the water and usually if someone is getting a little too physical, uh, you know, bumping, because it, it was a mass start back in the days of Ironman mass starts. And if someone's getting too physical uh, and, and bumping me or, you know, hitting me or whatever with, the, with their swim stroke, I'll give a little extra oomph in my backstroke with, with my elbow and just kind of elbow them in, in, and let them know that I'm there uh, while I'm doing my swim stroke. I tried that, and I don't know who this person was, but they were such, it, it may have been you for all I know, but this person was <laughs> such a strong swimmer that as I moved my elbow back for my stroke to let them know that I was there, they took my elbow, took my wrist, pushed my wrist behind my elbow, tucked it behind my back in a chicken wing, and swam on top of me all in one motion. And I, if I hadn't been so impressed by the maneuver, I would have been angry. Um, but, <laughs> you know, they, they swam on top of me, and the whole pack quickly passed me from, from at that point. And I was thankful for that. But as I was in that pack, it was... I put my head down into the water and I see a tropical school of fish in the most mellow Zen-like aquarium that I'd ever swam in. And then I would lift my head and I would get punched in the face. And I'll put my head back down and I'd be back and see the sea turtles going and, and just relaxing and having a good time. And I'd lift my head to breathe and I'd get kicked in the nose. And that's what it was like. Um, and I inhaled so much salt water and that was the saltiest water that I'd ever experienced. One of my team and training teammates had advised me to put uh, Sour Patch Kids in my bento box on my bike for when I got out of the water to just kind of get rid of some of that, that salt, intense, overpowering salt out of my sinuses. So I put the, uh, I get on the bike, I'm excited, I'm overjoyed I'm out of the water that I, I made the cutoff. I'm thinking, out of the water in Kona. I'm on the bike in Kona, and the first thing I do is I pop that that Sour Patch Kid, and I was so excited that I forgot to chew it. It gets lodged in my throat. <laughs> I start seeing black spots. My, I'm wobbling back and forth on the bike. I'm refusing to get off the bike. I'm trying to do a one-armed Heimlich maneuver to dislodge this 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 candy. And uh, I was like, "This is it. I'm going down within the first mile on the bike in Kona. I'm I'm an idiot." And thankfully, it, it, I was able to hit my chest hard enough that it dislodged the Sour Patch Kid. And then I chewed it. I had another one. And then I had the slowest bike I had ever experienced in, in Ironman career to the point where I knew when I got off the bike, in order to finish the race in the time cutoff, I had to PR my run by 20 minutes. Wow. And, and, and so you, you, you start the run and uh, I mean, it, it, it's Kona. There's always people out there. The camaraderie is amazing. I assume the camaraderie was amazing, but it's Kona. So the majority, I mean, these are the best triathletes in the world. They qualified to get in the race. Um, I rode my bike across the country, the United States, uh, from West coast to East to get into the race and raise money. Uh, and awareness for the fight against cancer and organ donation and transplantation. But 
I'm by no means a fast. I'm a back of the packer in general. In Kona, I was scraping the edge of midnight. Uh, and so there was some camaraderie when I did see a, one or two stragglers, but it gets so dark out on the Queen K that it's just endless black. And you just keep shuffling along, hoping that you can finish in time, trying to do race math in your head. Okay, if I, if I keep this pace over this many miles, I have a shot at finishing. And that's what I did. I remember watching the the NBC coverage, and I think those were pretty much your exact words. There, camera on you out on the run, and uh, you said, uh, "If I if I keep this pace, I got a shot. It's going to be close." Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> and you know they they knew I had a I had gone through cancer and a heart transplant to get there, so they had cameras on me for most of the day, and you know it, I'm glad the story got out there. Um, I think. Hopefully, it's a lot of good uh, for people to see that. Other people who have uh, cardiovascular issues or any kind of issue where they question whether or not they're able to do something. But that day, all I wanted to do was wince and cry in pain because I was cramping the whole day and I wanted to pick my wedgie. I wanted to pick the spandex out of my, <laughs> my rear end. Um, I was just like, dude, just give me a break. I just. I'm having the worst day ever. I was cramping so bad on the bike, I couldn't spin. Uh, my, my, my hamstrings were cramping so bad, I, I couldn't do a full rotation. So most of the Queen K uh, for me was were one-legged spin drills. Um, so it was, it was a rough day. Um, and so by the time I crossed that finish line, I was dazed. I, I, I barely knew where I was, but... Uh, I finished and to have that honor to carry my donor's heart and be the, the first cancer surviving heart transplant recipient to finish, uh, uh, you know, uh, in Kona, that was, that was an honor. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And, and, and it almost coming full circle from, you know, uh, you told the story about Bill in, in Lake Placid and yeah. being one of the last finishers coming across the line and, and, you know, watching the video of you coming down the chute at Kona with everybody screaming and yelling. It was, it was motivating for anyone, much less anyone who's overcome, you know, the, the things that you've overcome to get where you are. You're right. I became Bill. <laughs> That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a happier ending, but yeah, but, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, so, yeah. So, 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 oddly enough, before uh, in our, our little pre-discussion before the interview, you were mentioning that you had signed up for Ironman Canada this year, and I had mentioned I'd signed up for it, and and Elmer Sprink, um, a German triathlete with a heart transplant, he was signed up for it. So, as as I, I didn't realize the three of us were so close to being together, but as I mentioned in the last couple of podcasts, I kind of got into this podcasting to to learn a new skill during the uh, COVID-19 self-distancing work from home thing. So uh, it doesn't look like we'll be going this year, but um, what what do you have planned for, what does Derek do outside of triathlon now? <laughs> well, uh, I have a couple businesses. I'm uh, a, well, uh, first and foremost, I'm, I'm a dad. I've I've become a father post-transplant, which is the most important thing in the world to me. And, and, and of all the gifts that I've received and things that I've been able to do, having now, I'm nine years out from heart transplant, having a six-year-old little girl who would not be here because of my donor or without my donor. Um, 
she is she is a, a gift beyond words. Um, so uh, I'm I'm always happy to be a dad first. But I do have a couple businesses. I I I have a a for profit that I use uh, to. I use technology to help people improve their quality of life by becoming more active after going through significant health challenges. Um, and then I have a nonprofit called the Recycled Man Foundation, which pretty much does the same thing without the technology. It's it's really just to get people active after you know any kind of health challenge. It doesn't have to be cancer. It doesn't have to be a transplant. It could be PTSD. It could be a car wreck. It could be anything. But but the matter is is that once you've gone through something significant like that as a challenge, it's more important than ever to get up and get moving again. And it, it's it's not about becoming an Iron Man. It's about being able to walk with your significant other, you know, with your dog around the, the neighborhood or, or around the lake and getting outside and, and keeping the ties uh, to life uh, as strong as they can be. Um, and and rem the, the tagline for the Recycled Man Foundation is fighting for a life worth fighting for. And, and a lot of that is remembering why life is worth fighting for. And that's, that's the motivating factor. Uh, and then I also do uh, speaking. You know, I do my best when I'm not actively training or working to just tell people about the story. You know, it's not, a, it's not a, as much about telling them about myself as it is telling them about my donor and what this person and what their gift has done for me, for us now. And, uh, and, and, and just overcoming obstacles, overcoming adversity and stepping outside your comfort zones and, and achieving things you never dreamed were possible. Right. And that, that's the recycledmanspeaks.com. Yes. Recycledman, you can always reach me at recycledmanspeaks.com. All right. And I do encourage everyone to watch the TED Talks video. Just uh, I just YouTube searched uh, TED Talks, Derek Fitzgerald. And uh, it, 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 you're an awesome public speaker. I was, I was getting a little stressed setting up for this. I'm all like, OK, well, don't say like so much and don't say um, 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 too much. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> you, it, you're very polished. It's, it's 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 a great it's a great watch. Dude, it's just me. So whatever. <laughs> That's what they say. Well, you know, you're 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 a bit of a big wheel in 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 my world. Um, wow. Yeah. So so I'd, I'd like to to really thank you for for taking part in the um, in my podcast. Um, hopefully, you know, I expect hopefully I'll get a few people to watch it or not watch it because that would be difficult, but to listen to it. <laughs> uh, there's a I, I usually ask everybody one question of the two other people I've interviewed, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to ask you two questions. I, this just popped into my head recently. Um, I'm a big proponent as are you of organ donation. Uh, what's your, what's your 32nd elevator pitch to someone wondering whether they should be an organ donor? I think that organ donation is the purest form of generosity and compassion and courage that anyone can have. I think that if you were placed in a situation where you or maybe a loved one, maybe it's your mom or your dad or your, your brother, your sister, your son or your daughter needed an organ in order to survive, if you would accept that 
and accept someone's organ to save the life of your child, then you have to consider that you must then become an organ donor. It's, it is, for me, it has been the gift that has kept on giving. And I have lived now nine years, over nine years, with a donated heart. And it's only because that some hero chose the last day of their life to save the life of a complete stranger. Fantastic. Awesome. Um, the other question I like to ask people is you're, you're a well-traveled um, athlete. Uh, and I like to ask the athletes uh, if there's any place in the world where you could train, uh, what would be, what's your dream destination to do a training camp, to go for a bike ride, to, to, to do whatever you would like to do? You have to ask me that in during a pandemic uh, as an immunosuppressed <laughs> athlete. Right now, my dream is to get outside, outside my own walls and ride the courses and run the courses that I normally would. Um, you know, I, I had plans to do Penticton this year uh, as an Ironman, and it, it's uh, I, I've seen the pictures of it. So I don't really think beyond, you know, the race ahead of me. Um, so one day I will do Penticton and it will be as beautiful in real life as it has been uh, in my Google searches um, and in my dreams. But uh, until then, I'm here on the trainer and Zwifting and Ruvying and trainer roading um, until my butt gets tired. Fantastic answer uh, and very, very topical. Um, I, I, I'll have to rethink my questions now. Thanks for that. <laughs> but yes, getting outside is, is a big deal. Uh, so just to, in, in wrapping up, one, I'd like to, again, thank you for taking part in the podcast too. You had mentioned earlier when you were doing Arizona and we had been in touch with each other around that time. And, and I want to thank you for uh, being so forthcoming with with data, uh, you know, I said, "Hey, can you guys wear heart rate monitors? Can you send me your data?" And, and you all jumped on it. You were all it, it, it was just your your whole thought process of of giving, right? It wasn't like there's a big secret around my training. There's there's you're, you're so generous, and and I think that's important, and I appreciate that. And why uh, I certainly had you as as uh, one of the main guests I wanted for for this podcast series. So thanks again for that. Oh no, thank you, Ken, and it was. It, listen, there's there's a level of responsibility as a survivor uh, to help the next person, and that is that has been one of the f- fundamentals that I've learned that I learned very quickly after surviving as much as I have. And so, if there's anything that I can ever do to help the next guy, the next girl, then that's what I'm here for. I'm trying to I have a new tagline going there. I brought it up with the white last week. I always wanted these shirts made up to support or organ donation. And, and the shirts would say looking after these organs for the next guy, which is kind of what I think I'm, I'm doing. Should should the need ever arise or should I ever be in that position? Um, I, I think it's 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 a it's an obligation that we have as a species. Uh, 
So Derek, thanks again very much. Um, I appreciate you you helping out with the podcast. Uh, fantastic interview. Uh, I'm sorry I, I kept you a little longer than than I had promised I would, but the, the conversation was going well and the stories are are fantastic. Oh, no. So uh, if there's any imparting words you'd like to say, please feel free. You have the floor. No, thank you, Ken. Thank you for having me. And it's always a pleasure uh, talking with you. And I, I always learn something new uh, when when I, when we chat. So. Always happy to do it. Thanks for having me. All right, great. Thank you very much. So our guest today uh, was uh, Derek Fitzgerald, the first cardi- uh, cancer survivor heart transplant recipient to complete somewhere between five and six Ironman triathlons. Isn't that right, Derek? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, in- including the World Championships in Kona. So thanks, thanks again, Derek, and uh, it certainly will be in touch soon. Take care. Once again, some amazing stories that people have to tell us on this show. I'm never uh, at a loss for words when I chat with these people. So many questions I want to ask them. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Stay tuned for the next episode, which should be coming out shortly if it's not posted already. Have a great week, a great month, and a great year until we meet again. I'm Ken Reese, signing out.